Hey guys, welcome to Thrive Bites, the official podcast of Dr. Colin Zhu, aka The Chef Doc. On every episode, I talk with health and wellness experts from all over the world, such as doctors, chefs, dietitians, coaches, and many more. And I sit down with them and have casual conversations about plant-based lifestyle, how to elevate our emotional resilience, and what it really means to thrive. And I bring all of this to you. So let's get to this week's episode. Okay, guys. Well, welcome to another episode of Thrive Bites. I'm your host, Colin Zhu, and thank you so much for hopping on. Today, I have a wonderful, wonderful guest with us today. Her name is Dr. Andrea Matsumira. Say hi to everyone, Andrea. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. Thank you for asking. Yes. <laughs> um, so... I uh, I am really excited for her to be on the show today. Um, for those of you who do not know who she is, um, Andrea, Dr. Andrea is originally from Texas. Um, she is now currently in or- uh, Portland, Oregon, where she's practicing and basically specializing in internal medicine. She's done some hospital work. And now she's uh, focusing more and shifted in terms of sleep medicine more specifically, sleep medicine with women. Um, She's a wife and uh, a mother of two. And uh, she's very, very, very excited to be here. And I'm excited to share her story. Um, Thank you so much for hopping onto the show. Oh, you're welcome. I think this is going to be really fun. I love sleep and uh, sleep is important. It's, It's why we, why we function the way we do during the day or not function. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, like I said before the show uh, started, I, I said to you, it's just something that's not really talked about, not you know underappreciated, but it's so 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 vital and essential to our you know day to day routine in life. So, so without, um, I like to start off by asking my guests, you know, about their story and about where they came from. What inspired them to go from point A to point B? And I know that you've had a journey through, you know, regular medicine and then focusing on your niche right now. But take us, share us a little bit about how you got from point A to point B. Sure. So uh, I moved from Texas to the Northwest uh, for my residency in internal medicine. And I practiced internal medicine and hospital medicine for about 13 years. And during that time, uh, as an internist, you know, you'll juggle all these different chronic medical conditions. And the one piece that was always missing for people was their sleep. Over and over at the very end, people would say at the very end of an appointment or in the hospital, people would, the, the biggest issue would be a person can't sleep or I'm not getting enough sleep or uh, you know, I'm only getting achieving five hours of sleep. And oftentimes, sometimes people would have a really difficult time managing all of these chronic medical conditions. And what I uh, came to find out and sort of had this epiphany was that sleep is really the juggernaut to manage all of these other chronic medical conditions. And in fact, we sleep a third of our lives. We're supposed to be mm-hmm. sleeping a third of our life. And so that that led me to change gears, basically go back to school and uh, uh, 
obtain, go through a fellowship in sleep medicine. And now that's all I am practicing. I have focused all of my attention on sleep medicine and uh, specifically the health and, and well-being of women through every decade of life in sleep. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, like you said, it's a third of our lives, and it's it's not really that poignant until you phrase it like that, right? I mean, we spend a third uh, going to work, right? You spend a third sleeping, and you know, you spend another third, God knows what. <laughs> but um, right. so the question is, is that you know, did you have anything within your own personal health journey that contributed to have more of a focus with sleep? Or have you also, besides, you know, looking at your patients over time, you know, uh, have anything external, whether it's like a family member uh, with a, a health journey um, issue or something like that? Um, what else do you feel has contributed to your focus in sleep? Well, you know, I, I really think that just the society as a whole in determining how much sleep people should get. Uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty pervasive in every single, uh, anywhere you read any, anything in every single magazine, it's in all the big newspapers. Uh, there's actually quite a bit of information around sleep that flying around. And a lot of it is not exactly correct and accurate. And what I have come to realize is that we live in a uh, what I call a chronically sleep deprived society. Mm -hmm. And we have these unrealistic expectations of ourselves and of each other and often giving people, you know, high fives or feeling like you're missing out that FOMO fear, like your fear of missing out if you're mm -hmm. not engaged in everything. And really, really, I think that I'm, Part of my mission is to uh, bring about public awareness that we actually do need to do need enough sleep, and sleep is really important in terms of health and well-being. And I guess, I guess, in a, this roundabout way of answering your question, what really sparked my interest was when my kids got old enough to start getting into competitive sports. Mm -hmm. uh, that was about six years ago and they had to they had to practice really late in the evening mm. and so these my kids were coming home after nine o'clock and you know they'd been practicing they play soccer and they'd been practicing on a field for over two hours and their ability to have to the need to have to wind down the need to have to eat after working out for two hours making sure they were getting all of their homework done, all of these things. It's a, it was a lot of pressure on, on them to, and then to have to make sure that they're getting enough sleep to wake up by six 30 the next day to have to get to wherever they need to get to by a certain time. And I thought, you know, for one, we start school too early. And then secondly, for a variety of reasons, kids sports are often played or the practice is done really late in the evening. And, mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. we're, so we have all of these unrealistic expectations around kids. Mm -hmm. And and then we wonder why kids are imploding or they're failing or they're, mm. they're stressed out. So that's really what kind of 
spurred my the whole thought around the fact that sleep for me is is unrecognized it's it's something everybody talks about but people don't really understand just how important and vital it is to one's to one's life so you know for a lot of people they think that they can do more if they get a little less sleep and that's counterintuitive there are study there's study after study that shows that if you actually get your full 8 hours of sleep which is recommended 7 to 9 hours and so everybody wants to err on mm-hmm. this they want to they want to get by with 7 but the the point is that lots of studies show that if you are actually getting enough sleep and it's quality sleep you can do more in less time because you're rested versus mm-hmm. trying to do more with the time that you have that you've given yourself by shorting yourself sleep because you're inefficient. You're tired and you're inefficient right. and reaction times are less. Memory, re- your recall is slower. Um, you know, patients who have untreated sleep apnea have a reaction time that's the same as somebody who is inebriated on the road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, that's um yeah, there's a lot of points to that. I mean, you know, reflecting reflecting on today's society um and kids schedule and 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 uh just the loads of stuff that they go through. Um it's interesting when you said that, you know, they wake up really really early. I'm trying to remember what time I had to wake up, but I remember, you know, classes would start at uh, either eight um, or seven, um, and so you would have, depending on you know what stage of schooling you know you're in. But I feel, and even then, you know, I was you know academically motivated, but I also was more interested in my extracurricular stuff. And you know, I have colleagues now that um, are parents. You know, I personally don't have a family right now, but you know, they also tell me and share with me their. Uh, their their school scheduling and you know how their kids and what what types of extracurricular stuff that they also have on top of school. So when you talk about your own kids and their sports and, and schedule and how much layered it is, it's you know everyone only has twenty four hours in a day, right? So I feel like kids nowadays are just so inundated and overwhelmed um, with just so much more stuff that they have to cram in. Um, within a school schedule. And then, you know, every parent wants them to be high performing and high achieving. So there's going to be a lot of activities that they're going to add to that. So it's, um, in a way, it's very stressful to be a kid, you know? Absolutely. There's so many more demands. Uh, My son is in high school and taking quite a, quite a few AP classes in science. And I'm looking at his work thinking, well, that was what I was learning in college. Now, yeah. you know, I'm going to date myself because I went to college in the early 90s. But nonetheless, the, what the requirements for, for teenagers, for high schoolers, for middle schoolers these days is it, it's, it's unprecedented. And, you know, naturally, all teenagers have a shift in their circadian rhythm. So they're all night owls for the most part, not Mm -hmm. every single teenager, but for the most part, they're night owls. So they should really be going to bed a little bit later than we probably think they should. And they should be waking up a little bit later, but that requires a national movement and legislation to change 
the the start and end of school and how everything else afterwards happens, all the extracurricular activities. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely um, want to, you know, get back to the subject, um, because I also want to compare and contrast with adults, you know, so let's start off first by going back to the basics. And uh, so give us give us your your nutshell of a sleep one on one, you know, I've interviewed another, you know, guests um, in pulmonary uh, critical care background, and also they did they also specialize in sleep. And they were telling me seven to eight. And from me, um, my own personal uh, research is around seven to eight. You know, that guest had mentioned anything above nine is not good. Anything below six is not good for the overall health. Do you concur with that? And I also, you did mention about getting quality of sleep. And what does that look like too? Yeah. So I do. I concur. Uh, there are general guidelines and guidelines are, are there because they're they're kind of like the you know, the bumpers in the, in the bowling lane, you know, you don't, you don't <laughs> want to really go be, beyond them. So there is some evidence out there that shows that when, when people sleep longer than nine to 10 hours, that also reduces uh, mortality, uh, excuse me, increases mortality rather than reduces mortality increases. So basically it can shorten your life for a variety of reasons. The same holds true if you are chronically sleep deprived and you're getting less than seven hours of sleep. So a lot of people will say that they get by with six hours of sleep and they're just compensating. Honestly, they've just gotten mm -hmm. used to it. So they don't know uh, what they're missing out on anymore. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can say from my end of one, having been a medical student, resident, parent, there were decades of my life where I did not sleep enough. And when I finally was able to get to the sleep, to get the amount of sleep that I want to get, which is pretty much close to eight hours, I can, I can never go back. I could never go back to functioning on five and a half to six hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, your brain really, and the whole reason why it, it works that way is because we need enough REM sleep. Uh, when you're in REM sleep, that's when your brain is basically cleaning out all the waste products of, of your day. And when you don't have enough sleep banked up, when you're not getting enough hours of consolidated sleep, you're probably not getting enough REM sleep. So then you're not cleaning out those waste products of the brain. And you're also not engaging the other physiological aspects of your body in regeneration and healing, because a lot of that happens at night when you're sleeping. Mm -hmm. So then mm -hmm. all these other things happen to you. Could all these other things then not, not necessarily happen, but all of these other issues are, are correlated with chronic sleep deprivation, such as a reduction in your immune system, mm -hmm. an increase in, in cancer. There's, you know, an increase in dementia. There's all these associations and correlations now that are that we're finding out because people are not getting enough sleep. Hey guys, we're gonna be taking a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey guys. This is Dr. Colin Zhu, a.k.a. The Chef Doc. I just want to take a few moments of your time to talk to you about something. 
Something that I feel needs to give reflection and pause for. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know for me, I've been on the self-work journey for a decade now. And I remember in my personal experiences, uh, through my doctor's journeys and also from traveling the world, I was always searching for the next step or thinking that happiness was a destination. However, it's not. What I found instead was that life was a process and learning about life was also a process and a practice and that the state of happiness and the state of joy and contentment was also a practice. For those of you who don't know, since I don't share that much on my podcast, is that I actually battle with anxiety, OCD, and in the past, episodes of depression. However, little by little, step by step, after seeking extra help, I've been able to achieve monumental things in my life that I've been eternally grateful for. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp is a sponsor of this podcast. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. A couple of reviews. This is by... Rebecca Raymer. Becky has literally saved my life by truly understanding me. She has given me self-talk strategies and different thought pattern exercises that have made me stronger and a more aware person. I am so, so grateful to have found her. I've been to so many different therapists and none have helped me like Becky has. This is another review for Adam Johnson. I've had counselors before both on BetterHelp and in person through work. And Adam, by far, is the best counselor I've ever talked with. I feel like he actually listens to and what is going on. He asks questions to help you navigate your thoughts. And you can tell that he is listening and wants you to help you. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash the chef doc. That's better H-E-L-P. And join the over 1.4 million people taking charge of their mental state with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Thrive Bite listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash the chef doc. T H E C H E F D O C. Thank you for listening, guys, and back to the episode. Welcome back to Thrive Bites. Let's get back to the interview. And similar to, um, you know, we talk a lot about emotional wellness and mental health and how, how strongly it interrelates with physical health. Sleep is just some, you know, the same, you know, when you're not getting enough sleep, that's going to affect, you know, your focus and concentration and your ability to perform. Um, you know, if you're looking at it from a productivity, you know, standpoint, um, in terms of a job or career, 
um, and you know, uh, and amongst a whole bunch of other things in the for us in the primary care uh, setting, you know, I do family practice. You know, it's going to affect our blood pressure. Um, it's going to affect you know weight management in terms of you know how well you know we're going to carry that extra weight or not. You know, um, and it's just a whole host of things. And so, why why do you feel um, why do you feel sleep isn't really touched upon? Um, as much as it should be? Well, it's all about the expectations that we set for ourselves within our community and as a society. And so we're, we're lauded and you get promotions when you extend yourself, when you work more, uh, when, you know, when you go the extra mile all of the time and that really something else has to fall off your plate. And oftentimes it's your self care and part of self-care is getting enough sleep. And mm-hmm. so I, I just, you know, I, that's why I think it's really a public health issue, sleep, and really tra- uh, educating the, you know, the public at large around the fact that it's not just getting enough sleep, but as I had said previously, the quality of sleep. And why I say quality, because many people have untreated sleep apnea, which is all over the news. People know about sleep apnea, but it's consumerized, unfortunately. So in my feed, I'll get all of these, all of these advertisements for all kinds of things that will help your snoring, help your, help your sleep apnea, help your sleep. And honestly, they're just gimmicks. They don't really work. You really should be evaluated because if you have untreated sleep apnea, it could be a risk factor for heart attacks and strokes. It's an independent risk factor, just like having untreated high blood pressure, just like having untreated diabetes, untreated high cholesterol, smoking. These are these are things that are risk factors. So too is untreated sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in addition, gosh, I mean, I would say at, at any given moment, 20 to 30 percent of the population is suffering from insomnia. And that whole pressure in society to perform, it, it bleeds into people's ability to wind down, shut their brain off and get enough sleep. So yeah. it's this catch 22. Yeah. And that's, and that's pretty much independent from the fact that, you know, when you introduce the internet, you know, back in 1995 and then introduced social media, God knows, you know, pretty much when Facebook started. Um, and then, you know, this whole barrage of newer technologies with every screen possible from the computer, desktop, laptop to TV screens from like, I don't know, 70, 20p to like, you know, 4k. And then now you have smartphones and then now you have smart watches. I'm just like, what else are they going to come up with? And the reason why I bring that up is because of, you know, the screen you know, and the wavelength, the blue, you know, the wavelength um, that co- that emits from it. And, you know, I go through this sleep hygiene, and I'm sure you do too, Andrea. Um, and a biggest part of, uh, you know, good sleep hygiene, which we'll get into is, you know, just really not having that in the bedroom, you know, um, you know, I tell my patients that the bedroom is only, you know, for sex and sleep, that's it. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, when you have that distractions, um, whether it's a computer or smartphone, you're just delaying and diminishing your quality of sleep. Um, so going back, you said, you know, you said uh, average goal is eight. 
my question to you is that is there is there any science and evidence base in terms of the time that you you know go to sleep? Um, is it better if you get eight? Is it better to eat uh, uh, sleep at ten thirty as opposed to twelve thirty, even though you get eight hours of sleep? You know, it's really dependent on your own circadian rhythm, and that's just a fancy word for your own internal sleep clock. So everybody has a sleep clock. We've got uh, clock genes, actually, that are housed in our brain. Mm. And people generally will fall into one of three buckets. They're either early birds, they're night owls, or they fall into societal norm. When I, when I say societal norm, I mean they go to bed at 10, they wake up at 6. They go to bed at 11, they wake up at 7. But at least 20% of the population is delayed. And that means that they, their brain really wants to shut off at 12 and wake up at 8. Shut off at 1, wake up at 9, 2, 10. And they're often misdiagnosed as having insomnia or something's wrong with them. They're lazy. I've had lots of patients come to me and tell me that they always thought that they that there was something wrong when, in fact, they were just trying to follow their natural circadian rhythm, but it's not in alignment with our societal norm of getting to school or getting to work at a particular time. And, and so it. For those people, there's a really slick way of adjusting and re-anchoring your your bedtime and wake time. And mm-hmm. you brought something up uh, just a minute ago about electronics in the bedroom. You know, we've got nerve cells in our eye that connect directly to our wake center, to put it simply. And any kind of light that that we are shining in our eyes within an hour of going to bed is just sending a mixed signal to our brain. Now, granted, mm. there's all these functions on people's phones now to, to reduce the stimulating light. It works some, but it is not 100%. I, so mm. ideally, people really need to teach themselves how to wind down for their night. Mm-hmm. And they really should be focusing on trying to get that seven plus hours of sleep. Now, for folks who are delayed sleepers, ideally, they should be finding jobs that are more like shift work, but not everybody is able to do that. And in fact, like yourself and myself, we're physicians that doesn't exist. We don't we don't do shift work all the time. Most of the time Mm -hmm. we're having to get up early for meetings or whatever, Mm -hmm. like a lot of people in the world. And, and so there's a different, there's a way to actually adjust your sleep cycle by using bright light. And a bunch of studies were done on, on these type on delayed circadian rhythms and how to re-anchor your bedtime and wake time. And so, um, using bright light in the morning, it's, it's simulating anchoring your wake time. So it's, it, it's the analogy I give people is it's just like if you moved a bunch of different time zones, you know, Mm -hmm. so we, you know, we're on the West coast. If we move to Germany, that's 10 time zones away. The way that our brain would get adjusted to the light and dark cycles in Germany would be with the sun. Mm -hmm. And so it takes about two weeks and that's what we do for patients who have delayed sleep phase. We use bright light within an hour of waking to help re-anchor their wake time. Now, mm-hmm. I'm going to keep going because this is one of my soapbox kinds of, kind of <laughs> things. Because, because melatonin is 
as, as it's a supplement. And as you know, uh, there's no regulation truly on supplements. And as flawed as the FDA may be, it is a system of checks and balances and safety that a medication has to go through. So when we think about melatonin, anything and everything is sold out there with regards to melatonin. So you have to be really careful what you buy. And it's mm-hmm. and it's sold as a sleep aid. And that's just not how it's made in our body. So mm-hmm. we release melatonin from the pineal gland, which is a little gland in our brain, mm-hmm. around six to four hours before we actually go to bed. So it's actually a clock starter. It is not a sleep inducer. So time and time again, I'll have patients come and talk to me and tell me that they they tried melatonin to help them get to sleep and it didn't work. And I will say, yep, it, you're right. It doesn't work that way. It's not a sleep inducer. And in fact, we release it in picograms and it is sold in milligrams. So it's 10 to the sixth greater power. So we are, we can use melatonin strategically to adjust the, the clock starting in our brain. But that means mm-hmm. you should take it hours ahead of time in a really low dose. So mm. for clock adjusting purposes, uh, there are... Uh, there are ways to help adjust your circadian rhythm, your clock, your internal clock using melatonin, but it's not typically something that you should be taking at bedtime to help adjust your clock. Right. Because it's and way, way, way too late, right? Like if, for example, yeah. right. So let's just say you have a goal. Uh, you have an example of a goal of you want to have a routine and consistency is key where you want to go to sleep at like 10 30 or 11. And if uh-huh. you're saying that, you know, it's hours before, then they should be taking melatonin maybe like at six or maybe That's at seven. Right. Yep. So if right? you want to go to bed, if you wanted to go to bed at 11 and wake up at seven, you should be taking 0.5 milligrams to one milligram of melatonin at 7 PM so that you can get to sleep by 11. Mm-hmm. And from so, your experience, how long would they need to take melatonin for before it actually quote unquote kicks in? Either you take it or you don't. Um, if you take it, it will help your brain anchor bedtime. If you don't take it, your brain will then drift to its natural clock. So, you know, these are genes. So it's just like your eye color. You can't change your eye color unless you use colored contacts, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, what this is doing is it's it's anchoring. It's it, the melatonin is pulling your clock. The light is pulling your clock. If you take those away, your clock drifts right back to where it really wants to go. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. Um, now let's shift gears, and I know that your focus is on women, but before yeah. we get into that, um, you know what what have you learned and observed? You know between the differences between the gender, because I didn't know that there was genders differences, and I'm sure the audience would love to know. Um, you know, in terms of sleep, what are the differences? Yeah. Uh, so when we think about uh, quality of sleep, uh, most of the studies uh, for uh, sleep disturbance or, or Breathing issues in sleep, which we call obstructive sleep apnea or central sleep apnea, just sleep apnea in general, they've pretty much all been done on men. And that's because women will have uh, changes in their sleep cycle with their menstrual cycle. So uh, 
So women may be may have a little bout of insomnia a few days right before their menstrual cycle. Women will also have changes in their sleep cycle during pregnancy. Women will then also have changes in their sleep cycle when they have to be the person who is in charge of maybe all the child care or if they're breastfeeding or if they're taking care of elderly uh, parents or relatives. So there's all of these other kind of social confounding issues that affect a, a woman and her sleep. And then not to mention, you know, perimenopause, postmenopause, all of these, obviously all of these can affect a, a woman's sleep. For men, uh, the most, the most uh, common issue with sleep is the fact that they have sleep apnea or they may have some insomnia. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, but for men, a lot of it is, is sleep apnea and the common symptoms of snoring, waking up gasping, or your bed partner sees you having pauses in breathing or stop breathing. Those are the common symptoms of sleep apnea that it, are often seen in men. And in fact, what we what has been observed in studies is that women underreport the fact that they may have any type of sleep disordered breathing or sleep apnea because their partner underreports it. So they, hmm. women and men have different thresholds for what they notice as being something abnormal um, mm. <laughs> with their partner. So, <laughs> I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, so oftentimes I'll have a guy come in and he'll come in with his partner. And typically if it's a female partner, it's this, it's the, well, she made me come in and yes, the female partner yes. is saying like, Oh, he's snoring. He stops breathing. It's crazy. But then on the flip side, when I have a woman come in for potentially having sleep apnea, their male partner will say, well, I don't know. I think she snores. <laughs> so, oh, man. Uh, I, my, those are my favorite is just watching the banter go back and forth. And I'm yeah. in a way the provider is like being a third wheel, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. um it's interesting because when I reflect on my own patient encounters of husband and wife and vice versa, um, you know, you, you do have men come in with their female uh, partners and having that kind of, uh, you know, display of, okay, they're not sleeping well, they're doing X, Y, and Z. And then in the reverse, I actually do not see that as well. Um, I probably see more of the females coming in and ta- and telling me themselves without their counterparts that they're just not sleeping well. Hey guys, we're going to be taking a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Thrive Bites. Let's get back to the interview. Yeah, oftentimes a woman will come in and it's been a long time coming, honestly, which is why mm-hmm. I kind of made it my mission over time to really focus on women in sleep because by the time a woman comes to see me, a sleep medicine specialist, they've actually been at having to endure symptoms for a long time. And that's because we normalize them 
Um, mm. And sometimes it's good to normalize things, but in this respect, it's not. So mm. a lot of times women will have their inability to get uh, consolidated sleep, quality sleep, normalized. Well, you have little kids. Well, you know, you're worrying about all of this. Well, you know, you're trying to go back to work, you know, right, right. And, and in fact, they may actually have a a true sleep disorder and condition that, that can be treated. I feel like a lot of it has really, it's, you know, how, how we pretty much come up with diagnosis is, you know, the saying goes that, you know, we can die most of the time, three fourths of the time we can diagnose just based off of their history taking. And I feel that, you know, sleep, you know, um, irregardless of a sleep study, um, you can learn a lot of clues and you can learn a lot about, you know, certain patterns, certain routines. And that takes a very, very in-depth, comprehensive, um, you know, intake of, of what's going on from their day-to-day lives. So it's really important for them to, you know, for, for us to sit down really take the time out and listen to what they have to say and how they deal with, you know, their day-to-day routines. Right. And the reality is that most primary care doctors don't have that luxury. And so I'm more than happy to be that person for, for my primary care colleagues (laughs) because I understand I've been there. So my, another one of my personal missions is to be that care coordinator, if you will, to help the Uh person see how all of these other things happening in their life, how sleep is that juggernaut, how all these other things that are occurring are, if they got better sleep, higher quality of sleep, that things may fall into place a little bit better. So I often will spend that extra time with the patient to help them connect all those dots uh, and and do the primary care doctor a favor also helping to connect the yeah. dots. Yeah, um, yeah. Because, you know, sometimes I'll have a patient come to me and I'll, and they've been seen by, you know, three or four other different specialists because they've got other chronic medical conditions. And I like to put my internal medicine hat on at that point, in addition to my sleep medicine hat and help them kind of tie it all together. Mm-hmm. So... Exactly. Um, so let's dig a little bit deeper. Um, now that we're focusing on women, you know, yeah. are there actual stages, you know, for sleep um, over time um, that we need to look for? So if you have an audience member that's, you know, in an adolescent versus someone, you know, in their young adulthood, you know, maybe like 20 or 30s versus somewhere, you know, going before or after retirement, are there certain stages for women for sleep? So everybody has generally speaking, the same amount of, uh, of stages of sleep. So everybody has stage one, two, three, and REM sleep. It does change depending on your age. It doesn't necessarily change all that much depending on your gender. Uh, what we find is that, you know, little babies, for instance, can go right into REM sleep. Mm-hmm. And then as we age and we're growing, we'll have, so, we'll have more slow wave sleep, more REM sleep. And then through every decade of life, we'll probably have some reduction of that slow wave sleep or N3 sleep. Uh, Generally speaking, though, everybody should be getting the same percentages, the same averages. There's there's a range of normalcy, and every person kind of falls into that, just like with with other um, 
lab values, if you will. You know, everybody's kind of got the same general normal range. It holds true for your sleep stages. It also depends. I guess it, it, I don't, I don't think it'll matter too much in terms of genders, but you know, when we are in our teens or uh, younger and as we progress in age, you know, our responsibilities shift, uh, you know, a lot. So, you know, what would you say in terms of, you know, being American um, and living in an American society where we're just so always go, 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 you know, what would you say, you know, if we can't change, like, you know, we were talking about school before, or you can't change work, you know, is there specific ways we could improve the quality of our sleep, um, given the time limitations that, you know, we have during a, a, a day? Well, you know, I think the fact of the matter is that we have to we have to put more limitations or set more ba- better boundaries, healthier boundaries on ourselves as a society. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really what it boils down to, overextending our children, overextending ourselves, um, planning for downtime. I've always said that doing nothing is a choice, like you're choosing to do nothing. And that's okay. It's okay to choose to say, to say, I'm choosing to rest and relax today. And I think that's become even more apparent with our sheltering in place as a society right now, as we're recording, we're in the middle of, of dealing with the coronavirus. And, and many of us at this point in time have been uh, relegated to staying within the confines of our home. And I honestly think that there, there are many silver linings and uh, opportunities to express your, your resilience, if you will, uh, Mm -hmm. during a time of crisis like this. And, and one of the silver linings I would say is, is people are, getting in touch with their need to have downtime with their need to actually be able to realize that they don't have to overextend themselves and say yes to everything. And in fact, it's okay to not, to, to not have to do a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, 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 definitely. And um, I agree with you. I think the, you know, I, I'm a firm believer of shifting and focusing on silver linings as opposed to things just not happening in our lives. And one of the things is the, the times and opportunities to take pause and to take a break, to focus on being present in the moment, uh, reinforcing relationships. And I think in a way, this, this will inevitably have us change our focus and perspectives of how we live our day-to-day lives, um, how we do our daily routines and to figure out what is important and what is not important, you know, from my, uh, economic, you know, classes back in college, you know, what is considered a need versus what it's considered a want. And so sleep is one of those sleep is, you know, a need. And so we have to, you know, with the help of yourself and others, uh, focusing on the topic and, you know, figuring out, okay, how do we best optimize it? So, so shifting gears, um, when you have patients coming through your practice and, you know, being, and you're counseling them about sleep, what have you observed over time are the biggest common misconceptions um, they have with their sleep? So the biggest one is that they don't need as much sleep as what is recommended. 
So oftentimes people will say, I've been doing this for years. You know, why, why should I increase my sleep time? I get, I get by with five and a half to six hours of sleep. The other common misconception is the fact that they actually need to teach their brains how to turn off and wind down to get to sleep. So mm. it's, it's, it's all about behavioral training and it's a learned behavior that it's, 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 it's just like needing to exercise or needing to simple things like you eat, you know, you should exercise. You also should get enough sleep. And part of that, that process is learning how to shift from, you know, high energy to low energy and preparing yourself for sleep. A lot of people will basically go, 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 go and until they're exhausted. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't think we have enough downtime or uh, the notion of having a little bit of leisure time before mm-hmm. you actually get into bed mm-hmm. uh, has, has, has gone by the wayside, basically. And, and mm-hmm. so that's why I think that those are the two biggest misconceptions is that, they, that people can get by with little sleep uh, and that they don't... Um, they don't need to teach their bodies and their brains how to wind down for their from their day and yeah. get ready for bed. Those yeah. are the two biggest ones. I mean, other ones, there's here and there, you know. Some people don't believe in sleep apnea. <laughs> <laughs> really? Any more that they believe in the coronavirus? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it because sadly it's been consumerized. So they think that there's some sort of weird, you know, ulterior motive of selling a machine. Mm. (laughs) Right, right, right. Exactly. Or the same thing with, um, with, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, uh, our pills, you know, our, you know, big pharma capitalizes on this in terms of, you know, really, really focusing on preventative, um, and education and teaching of lifestyle related diseases, you know, I think we just shift too much or we're just conditioned or from the consumer's point of view, when they're being blasted with these commercials of at the next drug, you know, it's, you know, we need to focus, like you said, to retrain behaviors and retrain, you know, routines, you know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah, so thank you for sharing that. So I would love to close out. Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask my guests is how do they personally thrive? And what I mean by that is, you know, what gets you up in the morning, you know, what lights your fire, what keeps you motivated to keep going? You know, I would love to hear uh, about that. That's the first part. And then the second part is if you're able to give us, you know, your version, kind of like sleep hygiene, you know, one-on-one for our audience members. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, what, what helps me thrive is obviously getting enough sleep now, And I do love to exercise in any form of exercise, just moving my body. I always say that we're machines and our machines have to be worked. And Mm -hmm. so moving our body and uh, just spending time with my family. So I've I've uh, enjoyed spending time with my family sheltering in place. Obviously, there are times of tension, but for the most part, I've really enjoyed it because you don't. You, I, every day that I wake up and I can move all my arms and legs and I know who I am, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Every, every day above ground is a great day. <laughs> yeah. 
day. So uh, that's that's what keeps me going. Um, in terms of sleep hygiene, you know, uh, the biggest thing is no electronics in the bedroom, no TV in the bedroom, no phone, no tablet, no laptop. Take it away. Just keep your bedroom the sanctuary for sleep and intimacy. You don't you don't need to be doing anything else because if you do other things in your bed, your bed your your brain is conditioned then to think that that's not where it needs to sleep. It thinks it's the kitchen table or the sofa. Mm, mm. So, um, when we think about sleep hygiene, we think about what are the things that you do to help prepare yourself to sleep. So. Generally speaking, you don't want to eat a big giant meal right before you go to bed. You don't want to vigorously exercise right before you go to bed. Um, granted, for some people that gets them very sleepy, but for most people, it's excitatory it, and they have a hard time winding down. You don't want to drink any caffeinated beverages within six hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another misconception. Lots of people will say, oh, I can drink coffee or tea and go right to bed. And I tell them, no, that just means you're chronically sleep deprived. It doesn't mean that. that it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, doing whatever routine or ritual that you have. So, you know, if you wear pajamas, if you brush your teeth, if you, you know, listen to some sort of relaxing music, whatever it is that you do to help wind yourself down for sleep. And then in addition, no lights in the room. So ideally, there shouldn't be a bunch of light in your room. It should be cool, uh, dry, and dark. Uh, and that's pretty much the, the basics of sleep hygiene. Mm, mm. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate it. I think this is a great, um, great thing to talk about. And, you know, we'll continue to talk more about this in future episodes. But, you know, thank you so much for taking the time out and sharing, you know, your expertise. And um, for those in the audience that are wanting to learn more or looking, you know, wanting to look you up, how do they reach out to you? So I do have a, a Facebook group called Sleep Well with mm-hmm. Andrea Matsumura, MD. Great. On Instagram at Holistic Sleep MD and on Twitter at MDREA007, Holistic Sleep MD. And we'll put that into the show notes for and uh, look out for that. So uh, thank you so much, Andrea, uh, for coming on to the show. And I really appreciate it. And uh, keep doing what keep doing what you're doing. Guys, thank you so much for listening on. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, and follow. And if you feel that this is of value to you and maybe to someone else, please pass it along and share it with them. And uh, until next time, we'll see you on the next one. Hey guys, that was another episode of Thrive Bites. If you like that episode, please subscribe and follow for new episodes. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts.